A very good morning to you. Nice to have you here at HTC, particularly if you're a visitor. My name's Ed. I'm one of the ministers here. Just take a moment to carry on those chats. This great Barbie film, maybe you've not heard of it, in case which planet have you been on, but just turn to your neighbour. Have you seen it? Would you watch it? Why would you definitely not want go and watch it? If you did watch it, just turn to your neighbour. What do you think? Just turn to your neighbour. <laughs> great, well done. Well, um, gosh, to cheer... <laughs> you, I... Vibrant chats, you must have loved it. Mixed reviews I'm hearing. Some, no way would I see it. Someone else just said, I loved it. Someone else, it was okay. I wonder where you sat on the spectrum. I went to see it Monday night. I don't know why you're laughing at that way. I'm a, I'm a modern man and I, I enjoyed it. It was um, fascinating. <laughs> it was um, riveting. It was packed out, the cinema. I tell you, Clapham is heaving with Barbie mania. Here's, if you want to buy this off me, actually, there's a Barbie sort of magazine about it. But Clapham's heaving. The world seems to be shaking as they talk about Barbie and Ken. And one billion pound dollar, so one billion dollars has already been hit in the first couple of weeks of the box office, making the director, Greta Gerwig, the biggest film ever to be directed by one woman, Greta Gerwig. Phenomenal. It is touching the world in all sorts of ways and it's raising all sorts of questions I'm sure you've heard about. For some it's a celebration of, of girl power, of feminism. Yes, for some. For others it is, uh, for others, it is uh, a satire of one company's capitalist ambition. For others, to be honest, it is just a lovely, cheerful, colourful, pink, upbeat sing-along musical. In fact, I have been singing in the shout all week because I'm just Ken. Anywhere else I'd be 10. Do YouTube it if you've not sung it. It's a great little song with such meaning. But it's so exposing. It is so exposing, the film, on so many levels. You know, the director, Greta, she has a Catholic background and the Christian theology seeps, to be honest, through the film. It's got four acts, if you like. If you don't know the story, it's got four acts. The first act, if you like, is an Eden. It's a paradise, Barbie land, where Barbie is queen and there is no king. The Kens are her servants, as it were. And every day is perfect. Every day is a great day for Barbie. Everyone's beautiful, no one ages. It is just bliss in Barbie land. In the words of the narrator, Helen Mirren, all problems of feminism and equal rights have been solved in Barbie land, but then Acts 2 happens, where suddenly fractures, cracks appear with the real world. So Barbie begins to cry. She's not cried before. And the milk carton she uses to pour onto her uh, cereal, which she can't actually eat, but it goes off, it expires. And then on her thigh appears something called cellulite, which I had to Google, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> but there you go. Brokenness begins to hit Barbie and Ken. And so Act 3 begins as she goes into the real world through the portal, looking for rescue, looking for salvation. And Ken and her discover patriarchy. And in the words of the Time magazine, Ken falls under the sway of the patriarchy and returns to Barbieland to preach its gospel. So they come back to Barbieland and the battle of the sexes ensues. But then act four, the closing act really, sums up the film by Barbie being restored as queen of her land. And Ken remains where he's meant to be. <laughs> but also what's very interesting is right at the end, 
Barbie meets her maker, her creator, Ruth Handler, the lady who invented Barbie in 1959. And in that scene, Barbie and Ruth hold hands like this. And Barbie becomes fully human. She has the choice to become a a real, fully human woman in the real world. And she chooses it. And she goes out into the real but broken world. It's, It's fascinating. There are so many threads one could pull on to explore. Questions of meaning. The whole theme song of the film actually is, what was I made for? Questions of identity. You know, Ken is racked with insecurity, comparing himself with the other Kens. Questions about society and how it should be structured for its flourishing. Thread after thread you could pull. So for that reason alone, I I would recommend going to see it. (laughs) But there's one thread in particular I want us to think about this morning, and that is the, the sheer brokenness of Ken and Barbie. Because they are. Because Ken, as I say, he's insecure, wrapped with insecurity. He says, or it's said of him, for Barbie every day is a great day, but for Ken, it's only a great day if Barbie looks at him. And he's there comparing himself all the time to the other guys and longing for Barbie's affection. And he He wears his heart on on his sleeve. It's surprisingly moving. But then Barbie herself, the central character, is herself very broken. Because in Act 2, as I say, with the tears, they start falling. And her feet (laughs) are like this naturally. But with the fall, they go flat. And what is striking, she, she can't cope with not being perfect. With tears in her eyes, she says, I'm not perfect. I'm not pretty anymore. I'm not good enough. She says, I'm not President Barbie. I'm not Supreme Court Justice Barbie. I'm stereotypical Barbie. And she feels her brokenness. An embarrassment. An embarrassment is the word she uses. In that scene there with the other Barbies around her, she says, I'm embarrassed. And they say, Barbie doesn't do embarrassed. But she is. She is deeply, suddenly ashamed, not of what she's done, but of who she is. And Ruth, the creator of Barbie, sums it up well in the last scenes of the film. She says this to Barbie as they hold hands. She says, look, being a human can be pretty uncomfortable. Humans have made things up like patriarchy and Barbie just to deal with how uncomfortable it is. And what is so tragic about the film, in a way, is it doesn't actually give an answer. It doesn't give a solution to the brokenness. Not really. Barbie's going to enter a broken world and stay very broken. And she knows that and walks towards it. But in our passage today, as we're continuing our series in Luke's Gospel, looking at no other Jesus, we see something very different. We see, on the one hand, the realness, the shame of brokenness. But then we see a solution, a healing, a cure from Jesus Christ himself, who himself walks towards us in our brokenness. And we can all relate, I'm sure this morning, in our own different ways of being uncomfortable, of being ill at ease at times with life or things about us. And into that, Jesus speaks like no one else. So we're going to have our reading now from Adria. Do turn to Luke chapter 8, and we will dig in together. Um, It's on page 1043 in the Bible. 
Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. <clears throat> they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Thanks, Ed, very much. Well done. Let me say a prayer, and we'll dig into that passage. Father God, thank you so much that the spirit who caused these words to be written is the same spirit who's with us now. Please would he be our teacher, our humbler, our comforter, whatever discomfort we're feeling this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, before we dig in, uh, it's fascinating to see how Luke's put those two stories side by side. Mark, Luke's a careful writer. We're told that in chapter one. And he's woven these stories deliberately side by side. You have Jairus and then the woman and then back to Jairus. Sandwiched at the center is this woman whom we're focusing on this morning in her embarrassment, in her shame, in her brokenness. But it's fascinating seeing the similarities and the differences. There's Jairus, who's, who's a man. He's a man of honor. He is a leader in the synagogue he's a city worker he's made it he's got a nice house maybe it's on the common and his daughter 12 years old is critically acutely ill and though on the other hand we have this woman who well we don't know her name an unnamed unknown woman and she too is desperate disempowered feeling desperately weak 12 years too, not 12 years age, but 12 years of bleeding. She's known all this time. And they are very different lifestyles. 
Ken and Barbie, very different. And yet, it's fascinating to see how Jesus relates to them. Because by the stands of the day, first century Greco-Roman world, in that dominant patriarchal world, Jesus would always, you'd have thought, any man would make straight for the other men to talk to. You wouldn't talk to a woman, you wouldn't hang out with them, you certainly wouldn't let them come close and touch you like that in public. But what does Jesus do? He keeps this guy, this man of honor, this patriarch, waiting for the sake of this woman. (laughs) He turns upside down and inside out the stanzas of his day and continues to today. It's not so much Bible land and kingdom that he's interested in, but a kingdom that is very different altogether. Men and women made equal, unique in God's image to be treated with dignity and respect and honor, whichever you might be. That's what Jesus introduced, which revolutionized culture in the first century and beyond. Fascinating to read the cultural history of those centuries. And it's all because of how Jesus came not to dominate, but to serve. But the two things I want us to focus on is this. The first is the shame of brokenness. The shame of brokenness. And you can imagine the scene there in verse 40 with the crowds pressing in, Jairus having a chat with Jesus. But then verse 42 comes this woman who is trying to weave in with the crowd. You can imagine the scene, can't you? If Greta was filming this, there'd be a big uh, photo from above the camera, but then the camera comes along the ground, follows the ground, and follows these, this, this pair of feet through the crowds, weaving. And it's a woman's pair of feet. And they keep winding, crushing between the crowds. And then there's a trip and a slip and, and a crushing and a standing up again. And as the camera follows those feet, it pauses on the footprint. And there, in the footprint, in the sand, are other marks too. Deep red marks. Blood that has been dripping and dropping from this lady, well, for for 12 years. Not just days, not just weeks, but years. Theologian Elaine Storkey suggests that could be a hemorrhage from her uterus. And this is how she goes on in her book called Women in a Patriarchal World. She writes, this woman would have known enormous discomfort and dragging pain, along with that awful draining of energy, which any woman with long-term period problems knows only too well. And now she had few financial assets, having spent all that she had in trying to find a cure. We've seen that in verse 43. No one could heal her. So physically, she is incapacitated. Emotionally, painful. Medically, it's looking impossible. Financially impoverished. But on top of all that, socially isolated. Because as a Jewish woman in the first century, Palestine, she, like the others, would have known that the Old Testament laws of Leviticus 15 say that if, if, if you're a man with bodily emissions or if you're a woman bleeding like this, then by the standards of the day, you're deemed to be unclean. A picture, if you like, of the gulf between us and God. And that was there in Leviticus 15, saying you would be unclean. And anything you touched, anyone you touched, would also be unclean until the rest of that day. And so this woman... <laughs> She has to stay at home. She, she can't go anywhere. There's not a hug she's felt for years. Maybe her own family have disowned her. Her dad, you're not my daughter anymore. 
socially cut off, can't work, can't do anything, isolated. The shame, the loneliness she must have felt. You remember the COVID days of social distancing if you had COVID, two metres apart, masks, self-isolating, and that lockdown we had, 12 weeks, lockdown. Well, here we have 12 years of social lockdown. Imagine looking around the room again and again, the shame barely looking probably in the mirror. Such was her discomfort in her own skin, longing for escape, for rescue. But not just social lockdown, spiritual lockdown too. Because isolated at home, well, that means the synagogue is barred. The, the temple is banned. The, the, the way to God it would have felt himself barricaded. Utterly spiritually isolated and alone. The shame of that. Her whole sense of her value, her identity, her worth shrunken, tiny, a shell of who she should be as someone made in God's image. And just like Barbie said, I'm embarrassed, I'm not pretty, I'm not perfect anymore. Well, so too and far more this woman would have been able to say that too. And that was that heart cry deep within that I, I don't belong I don't want to be known and I can't be seen and I shouldn't be seen. That is the power of shame. It's, it's like a, a dark cloud that just hovers and hovers and hovers that the sun just can't get through. It's like a dark cloak that just hugs you and you can't tear it off. That's the power, the loneliness of shame that was true then, was true in Barbie and can obviously still be true today that sense in which I just don't feel good enough I I don't make the grade I'm so mediocre and we all know that feeling to some degree perhaps it's a trivial example perhaps I I still remember that feeling I was 12 13 a year eight cricket game um, where I was summoned to play they were utterly desperate and we we I was called up to play and I had to bowl and oh man it was absolute disaster. My first ball like that, I did, you know, just like that, just like that. Uh, is that right? Where's our sports minister, Jacob? That's how you bowl. Anyway, the first ball, it landed about, th- well, it went three metres over the wicket the other end. It was literally flying. Don't laugh. That's, yeah. But honestly, that's just how they were, my schoolmates. But then the second ball, you think that was bad, was even worse. Did I, I, I thought, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do a smaller run-up this time. <laughs> so I did a run-up, and the ball landed literally a meter from my feet and it rolled and it honestly it was like a snail it felt like an eternity and I tell you just how you're laughing cruelly now that is how my mates and I just wanted the the ground to swallow me up I was embarrassed and that's a silly example I think I'm over it now but (laughs) but thankfully there isn't an HCC hub cricket. But, but in different ways, that feeling we can all relate to, however old we might be. I think of an eight-year-old, a friend was telling me about his eight-year-old daughter who in gymnastics just can't do the splits and she's being told to practice, but she, she can't do it and she just 
she feels inadequate and inferior and imperfect. And so she, she's given up. She won't do it now. She feels only two to the number one. Or all sorts of things. I think of a, a, a guy I, uh, I, was, I met the other day who was telling me in his middle age, he looks in the mirror and I asked him how he feels when he looks in the mirror. He said, ugly. I think of times at work, you know the time when the pressure's on and you're asked to deliver and you deliver mediocre stuff. It's not amazing, it's not awful, but you just compare yourself to the other guys and I'm not good enough. All that family impact, perhaps over the years, the perfectionist amongst us has been instilled by that perfectionist above us. And that, that, that can't be shifted, that sense of, I just can't be good enough. I'm not worthy. I, I need to stay hidden. All sorts of things. It, it could be that desire for a job and that... Signing on again and again and again just strips you of your self-worth. It could be that challenge as a parent or as a grandparent and constantly feeling I'm not meeting up to expectations. All that desire to be a parent and it's just not happening and you just sometimes can only weep. I wonder what it is. We'll all know something of that. And what's striking in the Bible is the Bible's so real and raw about shame. You know, in a sense, it's the Bible's story. Because there in Genesis 2, right at the beginning, before the fall, before anything was spoiled, Adam and Eve are there. And we're told explicitly by the writer, Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. They, they've got access to God and to one another and they are free in perfection, in their perfection. But then suddenly, as they turn from their maker, Genesis 3, refusing to have him as their king, shame enters the world. Remember, the first thing they do, they grab fig leaves. They want to hide, cover up. And then they run away in the trees, hiding from God himself. That's what shame does. It makes you want to hide and run away. And in a sense, all of us, spiritually speaking, have been hiding and running ever since. All sorts of ways we try and do that. Fig leaves we, we go for. Trees we hide in. Kentans we put on. Barbie hair we put on. To sometimes just cover that sense, as we heard earlier, of being uncomfortable in our own skin. And I know that's uncomfortable to even say that. You know, we're clapping. We're middle class, many of us. We, 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 we made it. We're doing okay. But here, no, the Bible story, and even Barbie's saying, no, there is a discomfort for each of us about being human. And it's that that this woman so wonderfully demonstrates. So I wonder, our first question this morning, can I ask that? Are you real? <laughs> if the real world is full of this messiness, this brokenness, are you real to yourself to others in church, ultimately to God himself, about your fracturedness, your own imperfection. Because we so often get things to cover up which just won't hold <laughs> for long. That's the first big thing, the, the brokenness, the loneliness of shame. 
But then secondly, and more briefly, we see and in contrast to Barbie, there is a solution. As I said earlier, Barbie goes into the real world broken, messy, and she knows it's only going to get worse, but she goes for it anyway. But in contrast, we see, we see an answer. We see a healing, a cure in Jesus. Because look what happens in our story. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately, her blood, her bleeding stopped this is a this isn't a tap on an iphone yeah take it or leave it instant no this is a grabbing hold like a life belt a sinking sailor grabs on that is the approach she makes to jesus i need you i've tried everywhere else every other fig leaf doesn't work i need you and she clings on and instantly we're told he she is healed imagine the the pain subsiding that the blood Stopping falling, the joy returning, the clouds beginning to clear, the sunbeams coming through, the cloak can now suddenly begin to come off, the shame is being removed. All because of a touch of grace. And you know, touch is a powerful thing in life, but also in the Barbie film. <laughs> There's then um, this moment right at the end, as I said, where Barbie is touched by her maker. Ruth, who's her creator, and they hold hands like this. And what is fascinating, in the, in the interviews which I've been um, devouring, to be honest, uh, this week, uh, yeah, f- fascinating. But what is fascinating is you, 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 you see Greta, the director's Christian upbringing, because she has explicitly said that inspiration for that scene was this painting, Michelangelo's painting on the Sistine Chapel, where God himself touches the hand of Adam and breathes life into the first man. He becomes fully human by the touch of the divine. Just like Barbie becomes fully human with the touch of her maker. And so to hear this woman is now becoming whole again, fully human, restored, because of the touch of her maker, Jesus Christ, imagine the relief, (laughs) the clouds parting. But then, boom, out of nowhere, look what Jesus does. Verse 45, who touched me? Can you imagine suddenly this woman who's been in the shadows of shame for 12 years, suddenly the spotlight is searching for her. She just wants to hide. What are you doing? No, please. I just want to go back into the crowd. I'm here. That's what I came for. I, I just want to go back home and start my life again. But Jesus, he won't let her do that. He will not let her do that. Who touched me? And of course, you know, imagine the tube tomorrow morning. Someone, t- well, you know, touching everyone. But no, Jesus knows someone's touched him and whenever Jesus asks a question it's not for his own benefit of course not he knows he's the Lord of all no this is for her benefit it's not for his and we think though that that's a cruel thing why would he do that why humiliate her anymore why bring her centre stage well actually this question which at the time feels so hurting like, like, like a claw digging deep in the skin actually you realise Well, it's the claw of of Aslan, that great, good lion, clawing into Eustace. Remember the story of Narnia, where the dragon's skin is peeled off. It hurts, but it only hurts 
in order to heal. And here, he's asking the question to heal her, to bring her out of the shadow of shame into the very warmth of the light of his love. That is why he's doing He's reinstating her to community. That's always the case with grace. It's not just a vertical thing, me and God, but it's horizontal too. Jesus restores community with one another. That's why he is asking, who touched me? And there she is trembling, trembling. Oh, I I don't want to come forward. He is going to tell me off. He's going to be angry with me as I have brought my uncleanliness to him. I've annoyed him. I've delayed him from Jairus, the man who's more important than me. But she stumps up the courage and she comes forward. And wonderfully, Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. It's amazing. He's bringing her from the depths of shame to the heights of honor. In that question, he is, he is personally taking off that cloak of shame and with great pride and joy and delight, clothing her with cleanliness, delighted that she's come forward. He's not embarrassed. He's not ashamed to be associated with her. And that is the gospel, isn't it? Because by the Leviticus standards, that was the direction of travel. If I was unclean and he was clean, if I go this way, well, you become unclean. But here in the story, it's the other way around. Here's the unclean, here's the clean. And the clean coming in contact with the unclean, it becomes clean. But that means, obviously, Jesus himself ultimately becomes unclean for us. See, that cloak that she clung on to sooner or later would be a cloak that was torn on a cross. That blood that she had shed for years pales into insignificance with the blood that he would shed for her and for you and for me. That is the willingness of Jesus for you and me to go deep, deep down into the depths of shame to bring us up to the heights of his grace. That is love like no other. And that means the the thing we are most ashamed of, that hidden corner you don't want anyone to know about, there Jesus Christ goes and looks for to bring his healing. This is how one author, Rebecca McCoughlin, puts it. What we work hardest to hide is not repulsive to our saviour. Any shame we may feel must melt away at Jesus' words. That thing about that woman of which she was most uncomfortable, Jesus, in his grace, is perfectly comfortable to come near and bring his touching, healing hands. Isn't that amazing? The God of the universe, whose heart, whose hands flung stars into space, who keeps your heart beating in mind is the same one who comes near and is prepared to get dirty so you might become clean. That is the love of Jesus Christ. And as we close, look at the word he calls her. And this is the most surprising, beautiful thing. It is that word, daughter. Daughter. A word she's not heard of probably for years. And actually in the Greek... There is nowhere else in all of the Gospels where Jesus uses this word, daughter. Because in in the original, it means it's the most intimate, tender, 
honouring way to talk about somebody. Daughter. And with that word, she is restored and brought into the family in a way she'd never dreamed of. That is the touch of grace that Jesus Christ brings. And all it involved on her part was a touch of the helm of his coat. And so too for you and me this morning. I wonder if there's things you and I need to bring again to him. A small thing, a big thing, a hidden thing, a habit, a memory that we need to bring out of the shadows into the wonder of his light and his love because he will never say go away. (laughs) He will say come with that to me. And this is so personal. We're a crowd here. But Jesus specializes in the one in the crowd. Not just the 99 sheep, but the one lost sheep. And just as this woman was one in a crowd for each one of us this morning, whether we're on staff, whether we're a very first timer at HTC, whether we've been here for years, this invitation isn't for the person next to you. It's for you. It's for me. To know the healing, cleansing, forgiving touch of Jesus Christ. Which he wants to give you more than you want to ask. Who touched me?